good morning, everyone. I haven't met you. My name is Adam Brago, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Missio, and uh, honored to open God's Word with you this morning. We are going to continue uh, in our series in, in uh, 1 John. We'll be in chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Um, but before we, we dive in, I just want to mention, uh, we do have uh, one of our ministry partners here with us this morning. Uh, Mike and Lindsay Davis and their four children are back there. Do you guys want to just stand up so everybody can see you, see who they are, and uh, encourage you to, to uh, visit with them. I know we're supposed to, to visit outside, so you may have to take it outdoors, um, but they do have uh, these cards in the back there. Grab one of these cards. There's also a list you can sign up to, be, to receive communication from them, uh, so Mike and Lindsay, uh, for a while, were serving at Beacon Baptist in Clay, which is a, just a, has also been a great friend and partner of ours in the ministry. Uh, Mike was serving there as a youth pastor, and uh, they are preparing to go over to Scotland uh, to serve as missionaries, as church planters, uh, with a network called 20 Schemes, uh, which is, is also a group that we have partnered with, and Bernie's been over there a couple of times. And uh, 20 Schemes... Uh, is a group that really focuses on bringing the gospel to uh, Scotland's poorest neighborhoods. In Scotland, the, what they call schemes are basically like what we call the projects here in the city. They're the uh, government-owned housing and the poorest neighborhoods. And so 20 Schemes is a network in Scotland that's focused on planting churches uh, in those communities. And so the Davises are going to be heading over there, hopefully in April or May, if they can uh, finish raising the support that they need to go over and serve with one of their church plants and one of their schemes with the hope of being sent to, to a neighboring scheme uh, to plant another church in the future. So again, I, I would encourage you um, to say hello to them, grab one of these cards, sign up for their list, and uh, if you'd like to support them as well, I know they would greatly appreciate that as they're trying to close the gap to be able to get over there uh, and get to work with 20 schemes. So uh, Davis, is great to have you guys with us, and uh, we want to take some time right now even just to, to pray for them. So would you join me? God, we look to you together this morning, and what a blessing it is uh, to be called your people and to know that you are our God. What a blessing it is to gather together to, to worship you and to honor, to praise you, Lord, we pray that uh, our time together this morning would be pleasing to you. We thank you now for the Davis family. God, we thank you for all that you have done to bring this, them to this point. And uh, as they're so close to, to being uh, over there in Scotland, uh, God, we trust you uh, to continue to provide for their needs. We, we thank you for 20 schemes and the work that they're doing in Scotland. God, we pray as they prepare to go, Lord, we just trust that you would would prepare the soil. We thank you for the relationships that they'll have there with other church planters and team members. Uh, we thank you just for their commitment to the gospel, to, to making much of who you are. And we think about those schemes there and the struggles that they have and the, the issues that they face, and we know that uh, most importantly, their greatest need is for you. And so we thank you for the Davises and, and the rest of the team there that is committed to serving, to loving, to sacrificing for those who live in the schemes and to, to representing you well. And so we just pray your blessing over them, God. We pray that your spirit would continue to empower them, 
to do the ministry there, and uh, Lord, help us to be to remember them in our prayers, to support them, to encourage them uh, as they go. And God, today we, we want to pray for, for our country as well. We, uh, we know it's been a, a crazy time. We anticipate perhaps this week will be uh, surrounded by just uncertainty, maybe chaos. And God, it's so good to be able uh, to cry out to you, knowing that you are unchanging, that you are stable and steadfast, that you are our rock and our refuge. And we just pray that we as your people would trust you, would look to you, would cast all of our cares upon you, would not be anxious, but would give all of our prayers and petitions to you so that you would give us your peace so that we would be able to love and serve our neighbors well. And so we ask you, Lord, for, for our nation, for our leaders. God, we ask for your wisdom as your people. We pray that our eyes would remain fixed on you so that we would be stable and steadfast. Lord, our hope is in you. And so it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 6. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is the word of the true and living God. It says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if there's one thing that we want to be sure of, it's that we know Jesus. Not just that we know about him, but that we have a relationship with him. And not just any relationship, but that he is our Lord, that he is our greatest love. And there are a lot of other things, there are a lot of important things that I'm not sure of. I'm not sure of what's going to happen right, this week in our country. And I'm, I'm not confident that your view, that your opinion of this election is right. I'm not confident that my own opinion on what's going on in our country is right. But the one thing I want us to know for sure, especially in the chaos and confusion of this world, is that we know Jesus. And so our passage begins with this, by this we know that we have come to know him. Leading into to these verses, John wrote that Jesus is our advocate with the Father, that he's the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world, or that he appeased, he satisfied the required punishment for our sins. And so there's nothing more important than knowing him. And John wants his readers to be confident of that. Because Paul said in Philippians that everything else in comparison to that to the, is loss when you compare it to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. 
John said that he, he wrote this letter to those who believe that they would know that they have eternal life. And what is eternal life? Well, the same John recorded Jesus saying in John 17 that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John wants his readers to know that they know Jesus. There's nothing more important because he is eternal life. And so that's the question that that he addresses and answers that we want to ask this morning is how do we know that we know Jesus? Now, this is an important distinction to make. He's not asking, how do we come to know Jesus? He's asking, how do we know that we've come to know Jesus? Because the former, the one he's not asking, that's a question of salvation. How do we come to know Jesus? And the scripture is really clear. We come to know Jesus by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not by our good works. The question he's asking is one of assurance. How do we know that we know Jesus? And he says that the answer is if we keep his commandments. It's obedience. To put it another way, he's saying that keeping God's commands is a test of whether or not we know Jesus. He's not saying it's the means by which we know Jesus. Again, one more time, because we we can't miss that distinction. How do you come to know Jesus? The scripture's clear, it's by God's grace. We repent of our sins, we place our faith in Christ alone, it's not by our good works. But how do you know that you know what's the evidence that that's taken place? What's the evidence that you've repented and believed that you've trusted in him, that you are his? John says the evidence of that is that we keep his commandments. And John in this letter gives a a lot of clues as to why he's addressing that. He He tells us if we go on later in this chapter that there's false teachers that have apparently caused quite a disturbance for those that he's writing to. Later on in this chapter, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So John's not asking this question, how do you know that you know? He's not asking to to sow doubt. He's not asking because he thought that his readers were a bunch of nominal Christians, right? Christians in name only, and he wanted them to examine their lives because of that. This is a group that he cares deeply about. He calls them my little children. And there's a group of deceivers or false teachers who were in the midst of their church and by this point they've gone out now, they're no longer there, but they probably left some in the church feeling insecure. They probably left quite awake where maybe they caused some to doubt their faith, wavering. And so John wants to assure them of their standing with God. He wants to build their confidence He wants to promote their joy and help them see the error of those who were causing so much trouble. And so the same way, the last thing I want to do in in asking this question of you, how do you know that you know, my goal isn't to cause you to to doubt. My goal isn't to cause you to to panic this morning. The goal of this letter is, is confidence. John says, I want you to know that you have eternal life. And the reality is, our harshest critic, right, is, is usually the man or the woman in the mirror. It's usually our, our, ourselves. And so sometimes just asking the question, how do you know that you know, right, that causes us to, 
to doubt or to, or to panic, and that's really not the intent. So John says this is how we know that we've come to know if we keep his commandments. And last week, Levi mentioned three, three tests that show up throughout John's writing. Right? Three tests of, of how we know that we or someone else is in him, belongs to him, really is a Christian. He mentioned three tests, the doctrinal test, or, or what you actually believe, what you claim to believe about Jesus, the relational test, how you treat your brothers and sisters, and here, the behavioral test, right? because these false teachers were claiming to know God. They were claiming to be in the light while living in unrighteousness, while mistreating others. And so here is the behavioral test of those claims that the reality is if you claim to be in him, if you claim to be in the light, then you will be changed. You will be transformed. It changes how you act. It changes how you approach God's commands. It changes your response to him. And again, it's like we read something like this and say, well, how do I know that I know him? It's if I keep his commands. And immediately we start thinking of all the ways that we don't keep his commands, right? Again, we, we begin to criticize ourselves and maybe even begin to panic a little bit knowing that, man, I, I haven't done that. I haven't kept all of his commands. But the, the test here that John's proposing is not one of sinless perfection. If it was, none of us would pass this test on our own. And therefore, none of us would really know God. John already said in chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. He had just said in the verses before this that, that Jesus is our advocate. He's our propitiation. And so the test here is not one of seeking perfection. right? That you only, you've come to know him if, you, if you've kept all of his commands and you've never broken one of them. That's not the test that he's looking for. John Calvin says that this phrase, keeping his commands, really means to strive to form our lives in obedience to God. It's not merely an, an external conformity, but it's a submission of our will by seeking out his ways and walking in them. And I'm glad that we have a passage like this to help us think about the role that obedience plays in our lives. What role do you see obedience playing in your walk with God? My perception is we love to talk about love, but we hesitate to talk about obedience and keeping God's commands. We love to talk about God's love, but we're not as eager to talk about God's commands. Maybe it's because of past experiences. Maybe you grew up in a, in a strict or, or legalistic tradition where outward obedience was the focus, and there was no joy in the Lord, and so the walls go up immediately when you talk about the importance of keeping God's commands. Maybe it's out of evangelistic reasons. We think about those outside of the faith and we know that in every other religion, basically, obedience is the means for salvation. It's good works that get us to heaven or it's the way we live our lives, right, that leads to whatever is next. And so in an attempt to make it clear that salvation is not by works, we avoid talking about the role of obedience or keeping his commands. 
Maybe we don't want to support the misunderstanding of Christianity that it's all about living a moral life. Maybe it's for pastoral reasons that we know that talking about obedience or keeping God's commands can create a burden and so we we want people to experience freedom and joy of, of knowing God and so we avoid talking about it. But clearly, and as we'll go on throughout this letter, we'll see this repeated over and over again, John wants his readers to know that obedience or keeping God's commands is really, really important. Not because it causes God to accept us, but because it's the fruit and the evidence of a relationship with him. We often associate commandments with with a burden that we can't bear, and yet later in this book, John's going to write that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord revives our soul and rejoices our heart and gives light to our eyes. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. And it was this same John that recorded those words, who was a close disciple and friend of Jesus, who heard Jesus say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So, John here is not articulating an original thought, right? One, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but two, he heard Jesus say this very thing, where Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So John's writing, here's how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Certainly, right, John is just articulating what he heard Jesus teach. And so when we understand obedience biblically, we see it as an evidence and an expression of our love for him you think about the relationship of of a child to a parent it's nice to hear my kids every once in a while say i love you i like that and i i hope that they generally have positive thoughts when they think about me and good feelings Those, yes, are indicators that they love me. Their words, their emotions, they are important. But the most tangible evidence for me is is how they respond to what I say. If I ask them to do something, do they ignore? Do they resist it? Do they complain about it? Or do they say, okay, and and do what I ask? To me, that's evidence that they respect me. That's evident, tangible evidence that they love me not just in words, not just in claiming it, but that they actually care enough to do, even if they don't understand it, even if it doesn't make sense, especially when it doesn't make sense. That shows that they trust me, that they love me, that they honor me. I mean, it would be ridiculous if they said, you know, Dad, we love you. In fact, we're even going to sing songs about how great you are and how much we love you. But when it comes to what you say, eh, maybe we'll do it. Maybe we won't. I'm not really that interested. And so we can't separate in the same way obedience and love because we can't separate God's commands from who he is from his person, from his character. He's chosen to relate to us through his words, right? It's how he created. 
He spoke everything into existence. It's how he governs. It's how he guides us. He's given us his word in the scriptures in written form, which contains promises and commands. And so when we read the scriptures, this is why we find both indicative and imperative. That's why we find both indicative statements or indicative sections of scripture, which are essentially the declarations of what God has done and who we are in Christ. Right? There's large sections of Scripture. There's large portions of the letters in the New Testament which are indicative. They tell us about who God is. They tell us about what He's done. And they tell us about who we are now in Christ. But it's always followed by the imperative that now this is how we ought to live as a result. And that's where we find the commands. And there's so many examples we could point to. But the book of Ephesians, for example... The first three chapters, Paul writes about how all that God has done for us, right, the indicative about who he is and now who we are as a result, that we have been saved by his grace. The first three chapters, but he follows it up in chapter four, and this is usually the transition from indicative, who God is, who we are, to the imperative with therefore. Therefore, based on all of this, based on what we know to be true about who God is and who we are now in him, Therefore, here's what you need to do. Here's the commands you should keep. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He doesn't say that God saved them because they were worthy. He says, now live worthy lives because you've been saved. And so he tells them what that looks like. It's humility, it's gentleness, it's patience, it's bearing with one another in love. It's an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? Those are things we are to do now. It's a command we are to follow because of who God is and what he's done, how he's recreated us. You remember these false teachers right, that John is, is writing to address They claim to know God. They claim to be in the light while living in unrighteousness, while mistreating people. Essentially saying, now now that you know him, it doesn't matter how you live. But John gives two examples of why this doesn't work. One negative example and one positive example. Verse 4, he says, here's the negative example. Here's somebody who, who fails this test. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. But he's saying you, you can't claim to be with Jesus, to be in him, to be long to him, but not follow him in obedience. You, you may be able to pass the written test about who Jesus is and have the knowledge of him and even correctly understand who, who he was and what he came to do and what his call is on your life, you may be able to articulate that, but if you don't keep his commandments then, if you're not not striving to form your life around his word, if you're not submitting yourself to all that he has said and said, yes, Lord, that is enough for me, then John says there's two things that's true about that person. One, that person's a a liar. What they're saying isn't actually the truth then. And two, the truth isn't in him. You may, you may think you have the truth, you may think you know the truth, but it's not in you, it's not shaping you, it's not forming you, it's not de- really defining who you are. And so he's bold enough to say that it's actually a lie. 
He's not going to entertain it and say, well, that's your truth. No, 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 very strong words here. He says, no, that person is a liar that claims to know him, but it's not interested in his commands. And so he's giving an example here of somebody who, who fails that test. And so we stop and think, it's like, well, what if that's you? What if, if you claim to know him, but you, you really, you, you kind of bristle at his commands? You take issue with what he said. You're not interested in, in that defining your life. Well, the solution isn't then obedience. The reality is you don't know him. The solution then is to repent and obey. Not try harder to do what he says. And the reality is there are many in our day who claim to be Christians but resist the scriptures which contain God's commands. We have entire denominations, right, who claim to be Christians and yet have set aside the scriptures as authoritative and sufficient. And John doesn't mix words here for, for what that means. For those who say, yes, I know him, I'm a Christian, but the scriptures are not central. The scriptures are not authoritative. They aren't sufficient for my life. John's clear that that person, anyone who claims that is, is lying and they don't actually have the truth. But Jesus said, again, plainly, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. We, we can't have one without the other. That The keeping of the commands is the evidence that we really do love him. So an authentic claim then is one that shows itself in a new life of obeying God, of, of imitating Christ. Right? And he, so he gives the positive example, verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Whoever keeps his word, so he expands it here, not just the commands, but his word, his revealed will. In that person, the love of God is perfected, meaning it's, it's matured, it's brought to completion. That we can't just say, right, we love God. It's that when we, we say we love him, we make that claim, right, that's matured in us, that's completed in us when it leads to action, when it leads to the keeping of his commands, that's how we express our, our confidence in him and our love for him is through a submission to his word. And so then he's, he's, he restates this again in the end of verse five. By this we know that we are in him. Right? In him. It's the same as what he said before when he used the phrase knowing him. It means to have a relationship to God in Christ. This is how we know. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That we ought to imitate him. If we say we abide in him, then we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Right? That's what it looks like to abide in him. This is a he, he is right, the standard. He is the model. He is the example. I want to be like him. But he's not just an example to me. He's my Lord. And so when he has said, this is my command, that you love one another, we say, okay, 
Right? Because he's our Lord, we show that we love him by saying, I, I take you at your word. You've commanded it, and so that's enough for me. Yes, it may be uncomfortable. Yes, I may not be very good at it at times, but it is enough. And so I will obey. And so a few things for us to consider. Number, number one, we need to be careful that we don't add additional questions to this test. Especially as we think about others. That we don't hold people to things that are never commanded in the scriptures as a test of their faith. Right? And so that can come through traditions that we pick up if you've grown up in the church, maybe we've held on to certain traditions that frankly aren't commanded, and yet deep down we hold people to those standards. I mean, Jesus said in John 15, he confronts the, or in Matthew 15, he confronts the Pharisees over this. And some of, if you're doing the reading plan, we read this just a couple days ago, where he says that the Pharisees were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Or he says in Mark, in that same interaction, Mark records, he says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And we've got to be careful as we evaluate, right, whether our faith is genuine or the faith of someone else is genuine, that we don't add things outside of what God has commanded. Right? And yet, that, that certainly enters the world of politics. Right, that we've got to be careful, right, that we don't add things. Well, you're only a Christian if, or you're not a Christian if. Let's make sure that what follows that statement is not something that hasn't been commanded in the scriptures. Right, so let's, let's not add questions to this test that aren't there. Number two, we need to be with him and listen to his word so that we know his commands. How are we going to keep his commands if we're not familiar with the commands that he's given? To love him is to want to hear his voice, to want to receive from him his commands. To know that if I lead this, if I direct this, if I'm the one setting the course, this isn't going to go well. I need your direction, I need your commands. We only know that if we spend time with him, if we listen to him. We need to be with him so that we know his commands. Number three, when we come to his commands, we ought to have a posture of, yes, Lord. You've said it, and so it's enough for me. It's not a, it's not a burden, it's not a weight, it's a joy because I love you. And so we encourage, as you come to the scriptures, as you study the scriptures on your own or with your missional communities or with your family, right, we want to ask questions as we're looking at the scriptures like, is there an aspect of God's character here that prompts worship? That would be the indicative. Is, is there something here, is there a truth that I, or a promise that I need to embrace? But we also want to ask, is there a command here that I need to obey? Is there something commanded here that I need to follow? And that's not, doing that is not a legalistic thing. Doing that is a loving thing to say, Lord, is there something here that you're saying, something that you're calling me to, right, that I need to walk in obedience 
to say, yes, Lord, I'll follow. Dallas Willard says that the New Testament, over and over again, if you kind of take all of what it says, it defines a disciple as someone who is with Jesus and learning how to be more like Jesus. In other words, a disciple is someone who loves to be with Jesus and who wants to become like Jesus. And you can't have one without the other. You're not going to become like Jesus if you have no interest in being with him, talking to him, listening to him. And the result of being with him is that we are becoming more and more like him. And so that's our prayer, is that we would be able to say, yes, we know him. Yes, we, we claim it, we sing about it, right? we, we boast about it, we speak of him to others, and the evidence for it is in the way that we follow his commands in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, right? that we strive to become like him. That we don't need to resist it, right? We know that, yes, we, John says, right, when you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, that he's the propitiation for it. The standard here is not sinless perfection. But what we hope for, what we long for as a people of God, is that we would become like him, that we would keep his commandments, because Jesus said it so clearly. Right? It is the evidence of our love for him. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And we do confess at times, God, as we, as we open it, as we listen to it, uh, there's times when um, we may not understand it. There's times when, when we do, but, but deep down we, we want to resist it. And in our flesh we, we reject it. God, we pray that as your people, God, we would listen to you that we would strive to shape our lives around what you have said. God, may your word be enough for us because we really do believe that there's nothing more important than knowing you, Jesus. And so let us be a people who do keep your commands. In your name we pray, amen.